see Billy Graham at Earl's Court, and one of the things that really struck me was the pulpit moved up and down just um, depending on the height of the person coming. <laughs> there were other things which were more important, but... Um, This morning we continue our journey through the book of Lamentations and I read from chapter 3, verses 17 to 33. My soul is bereft of peace. That's right, I need to. Thank you. <laughs> My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is, so I say, gone is my glory and all that I hoped for from the Lord. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for one to bear the yoke in youth, to sit alone in silence when the Lord has imposed it, to put one's mouth to the dust. There may yet be hope to give one's cheek to the smiter and be filled with insults. insults for the Lord will not reject forever. Although he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. In 2011, Janet and I returned from three years living in China, and then began about 11 and a half years when life was filled, often filled with deep darkness and God often seemed far away. Briefly, here's a taste of some of the darkness, the pain we went through. Despite 25 years as a pastor in various churches and three years on the mission field, no church wanted us. And Janet was unable to find a job. A few years later, Janet was diagnosed and treated with breast cancer. At about the same time, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease which kept rearing its ugly head and has only recently stabilized. Near the end of 2017, I was hit with a serious medical problem solved only with a very large dose of medication which did the job but took seven long weeks of mental and physical hell to withdraw from. During that time, my mother died. 
Six months later, Janet was again diagnosed with breast cancer, this time a far more aggressive form, and it was followed by a year of hospital treatment. Two years ago, the process of selling our house in Dunedin was anything but simple, turning into a very long and stressful and at times scary business. There was a lot more, but I think you get the picture, and I'll come back to it later. At least we didn't go through what the people of Jerusalem went through, which forms the background to this book of Lamentations. They faced the overthrow of the city of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 587 BC, followed by an 18-month siege that starved the city and left its inhabitants undergoing horrendous conditions. Then when Jerusalem's walls were finally torn down, the temple sacked, the city destroyed and burned, those who survived were dragged off on a forced 1,600-kilometer march into exile in Babylon, where they remained for 70 years. But despite the, the darkness of this book of Lamentations, I've discovered it's God's gift to us. It invites us to lament, to help us process grief and pain in, the pre in God's presence, to give words to express our heartfelt cries. It gives us permission to cry out to God, as I so often did, to ask why. It allows us to passionately express our grief and sorrow, and by doing so, to process something of what has been going on deep within us. And as I have found, it can bring hope and draw us ever closer to God. Today we come to the middle chapter, which is the climax of the poem. And if that seems odd to us, that's how Hebrew poetry works. The climax, for some reason, is in the middle, not at the end. So here's the middle chapter, is the focus, the end point, the big thing the writer of Lamentations wants to say to us. Although there is much more to tell as he works it, this all out in the last two chapters, so you have to come back again in for the next sermon in a fortnight's time. At the end of chapter 2, daughter Zion, representing the city of Jerusalem, falls silent. And we hear from her no longer. Chapter 3 begins with the poet announcing himself as one who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. And in the next 17 verses, he lifts the torments he's endured, and they're horrific. So much so that we can't struggle through the horror of these verses without knowing that hope is coming. But at the same time, we cannot soak in the warmth of the hope to come without knowing that very soon our tears will flow at the destruction of his people. We need to affirm these two great realities, doing justice to the integrity of both. 
The horror of suffering and evil must be fully expressed and remembered, and the abiding faithfulness and goodness of God must be completely conveyed and recalled. Chapter 3 then begins with a heart broken over the judgment of God. It's a catalogue of the awful experiences the people of Jerusalem have gone through in a barrage of sentences beginning he. He has driven me into darkness. He has turned his hand against me. He has made my skin and flesh waste away. He has besieged me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me sit in darkness. He has walled me in. He has put heavy chains on me. He shuts out my prayer. He blocks my way. He has made my paths crooked. He has led me off my way. He has shot me in my heart. He has filled me with bitterness. He has ground my teeth on gravel. He made me cower in ashes. And who is this he that the, prophet, uh, that the poet speaks of in every verse? Who is it that has, he believes has done this to his, um, the poet and his people? Well, it's God, claims the poet. God has done all this. And this catalogue of complaints comes to a climax in verse 18. Gone is my glory and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. It's a terrible catalogue of loss and all hope completely extinguished. I certainly can relate to that. And no doubt many of you can too. The feeling of loss at some point in your life when all hope appears extinguished and there seems to be no tomorrow. For many of you this may have been the case during the earthquakes or the mosque shootings. You may have felt this if you've ever been made redundant or you've been bereaved and lost someone you love dearly. Or you've endured a broken relationship, the loss of friendship. You've been diagnosed with an illness and your future could soon be extinguished. You've been betrayed by the words or actions of a friend or a leader or of a church. And in all these things, there's that presence to a greater or lesser degree of the sense of the awfulness of loss, the terrible experience of abandonment, of expectations that are horribly dashed. But here the loss our author's writing about is so much more. It's not just the loss of a good gift that he's experienced here. It's the loss of God, the giver himself. It's not just one of the things that God gives us that is precious and awful to lose, but the loss of the one who himself gives. Losing God causes the poet to cry out in lament. Even though I call out and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has driven and brought me into darkness. But in the, at the end of this catalogue of the poet's awful experiences, note the last word of verse 18. Lord, in Hebrew, Yahweh. 
At one level, the naming of God is the terrible finale of a, a whole list of horrendous assaults in the previous 18 verses. All this is what God has done, the poet cries. And at another level, to name God at the same breath as lamenting the loss of future, the loss of hope is an absolute contradiction in terms. With the Lord Yahweh in the picture, the God who will be what he will be, there cannot not be a future. There cannot not be hope. And so having sunk right down to its very deepest point, if this book is to continue at all, it can only be up. And this is where the poet begins his, fine, his painful climb, in which every millimeter upwards causes him to strain every sinew and muscle of faith to grasp hold of the truth deeply embedded in that one word, Lord, Yahweh. In verses 19 and 20, the poet's memory arises unbidden with a natural emotional and psychological reaction to great trauma. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. In other words, I vividly, frequently, painfully, wretchedly, continually remember until my soul is ground down in misery and deep depression. But there's another kind of memory. It's the deliberate determined, teeth-gritting decision to call something to mind. It's an action of the will, not a reaction to emotion. Surrounded by all the painful and horrific memories, the poet makes a gritty decision. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Right here in the middle of the storm, in the middle of this chapter, indeed the middle of this book, the writer drops an anchor to steady the ship and takes stock. And we see an unbroken faith in the goodness of God. Yes, the storm rages on. But as we'll see in a fortnight, the poet has gained a better perspective and starts to see the way ahead. Because here, in the midst of his cries to God, he pauses to call to mind and to memory the goodness of God. And he gives us a remarkable affirmation of faith. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So it is that the poet calls to mind God's love, God's compassion, 
God's faithfulness. In times of pain and suffering, in times when the darkness rolls into our lives, we, like the poet, need to make the decision to preach truth to ourselves. We need to start clinging on to the way that God has blessed us in times past. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. In my case, as I struggled through the darkness of those 11 and a half years, I forced myself to keep looking back over my life and to retell to myself how God has worked in the past. I forced myself to read passages of Scripture that had meant so much to me over my life, especially those focusing on the goodness, the greatness, the love of God. Yes, the darkness and the pain still continued, but as time went on, I could move on with faith and with hope and eventually come out through to the other side. In a similar way, the, the writer, despite being surrounded by all the evidence that screams out that God has abandoned him, that God can't be trusted, that God has brought devastation upon him and his people, despite all this, the writer deliberately and purposefully calls to mind his unbroken faith in the goodness of God. I will not believe that he does not care. I refuse to accept that he has abandoned me completely. A broken heart from the judgment of God. Unbroken faith in the goodness of God. Now lead to an unbroken trust in the forgiveness of God. The Lord, the, the poet, assures us that while God rejects his people as an act of Judgment, he will not do it forever. For he will show compassion because of the abundance of his steadfast love. God may indeed bring affliction and grief. But it's not what his heart really wants. For here is an incredibly important truth. That God's love and God's anger are not equal. Yes, God's anger against evil is a terrible reality. It's the negative outworking of God's goodness in rejecting and rebelling all that is contrary to his holiness, his nature, and his will. But it does not define his character. God is love, but God is not anger. On the contrary, God is slow to anger, but abounding in love. Yet the crisis remains. The truth about God and the, the suffering that is experienced continue to battle each other. And this is the tension that the poet struggles with and which the rest of the book struggles with. It may, of course, be that sin stands between us and God. That's what our author believes is in his and his people's case. 
Why should any who draw breath complain about the punishment of their sins, asks the poet. And he calls out to the rest of the chapter for humble penitence before God. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts as well as our hands to God in heaven. We have sinned and rebelled and you have not forgiven. It's an uncompromising, straightforward admission of corporate guilt. We have sinned. We have rebelled. The author feels the pain. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite. We leave the poet there for a fortnight and move back to the presence. You may be going through pain and the experiences of rejection and loss at this time. Or you may be aware that there is from some time back, for it's never been properly processed. Realize that here God gives us permission to mourn, to let the tears flow, but also determined to put your hope in God. This surely is the position of the Christian believer in the face of terrible times, indeed in your own life or in the lives of others around you, to hope in God, to hope for the, the breaking in of the kingdom of God, to hope finally for the return of Christ, to hope for the confidence that God is faithful and also that he is compassionate, abounding in incredible love. But it's not easy to do that. I can certainly attest to that. It's not easy in the face of pain and suffering and difficulty, whether your own or that of others around you. When you see hard things happening, it's not easy to take that stance before God, especially when he seems silent. But it is possible. And that's why I'm here today, preaching from this book. For God is the one who does not willingly bring affliction or grief. And soon as we come around the communion table, we'll call to mind, we'll remember that he is the one who has steadfast love. He is the one who never fails. For his love is so great that he gives his only son, Jesus Christ, who takes our punishment for sin. This above all is what we remember. And so hope with confidence. This is our God. This is the one we bring our broken hearts to. The one who must keep, we must keep our faith in and our trust for forgiveness. The one who shows great compassion because of his unfailing love. Let's spend a couple of minutes in silent prayer and reflection as we begin to process what 
God's been saying to us this morning, then I'll pray and we'll move into communion. Let's just pray and reflect. Almighty God, even in darkest darkness, the toughest, the most painful times, we can still have hope. Because of your great love, we are not consumed. Your compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You are all we need and are good to those who hope in you, to those who seek you. I pray that we will each one know that truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we come around the communion table with those who are helping serve, come forward. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. One way to prepare for whatever darkness and pain lies ahead of us is to build a storehouse of memories which we can use to call to mind and to gain hope. Regular worship regular Bible reading, frequently reminding yourself of how you came to Jesus and the good things that God has done for you, observing the festivals of the Christian year, for example, Advent, Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Pentecost, and thinking about what God did in those. And there's also what we do now, as we come across uh, around the communion table, for it's here that the words of lamentations 
Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Meet the words of Jesus on the night before he was crucified, when he said, do this in remembrance of me. For here in the bread and the juice is the reminder of God's incredible love in Jesus Christ. And that brings hope. John in his first letter tells us this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is how God, is, is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paul writing to the Christians in Corinth says, The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup saying, this covenant, this um, cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink this in remembrance of me.
Our loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this reminder of your great love, supremely shown in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In calling this to mind, keep it ever before us, so that we may go from this place into whatever is before us, filled with hope and strengthened by your love and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Will the musicians come forward and lead us in our final hymn, one with many references to the book of Lamentations. Great is your faithfulness. Please stand. Strength for t- 
some here this morning for whom this um, book of uh, Lamentations has stirred up pain and darkness both from the past or from the present and Rod and I would be very happy to pray for you or talk with you or go to someone else you can trust but please if that's the case um, don't leave talk to us or and let us pray with you. Next week, don't forget, it's the combined service over at Parklands at 10.30. And then a fortnight later, we conclude this series of Lamentations, Finding God in the Darkness. Now may God's arms enfold and protect you. God's word inform and inspire you. God's love infuse and transform you. God's Spirit flow and empower you, now and forever. Amen. to pen lyric and melody and after a couple of hours it just